Falcha Mokara. My name is Dr. Corey Wren. I am a sociology lecturer at the University of Kent, specializing in Western animal rights and animals and society more broadly. In this lecture, I'm going to be talking about the troubles in Ireland. <clears throat> and the interesting overlaps between activists of the troubles and the experience of non-human animals um, the surprising vegan history there, and some vegan celebrities. Perhaps the best place to start with this lecture is to explain what the Troubles are. For people who are living outside of Ireland or the UK, such as my American colleagues and friends, you probably don't know anything about the Troubles. I know for myself, I was a child of the 80s, and um, you know, by the time I was an adult, the, the troubles had pretty much passed over. And so I was not aware of any of that history. So basically, the troubles are a, a time in the mid to late 20th century of uh, Northern Ireland. A deep political um, turmoil and a lot of uh, actually a lot of violence as well. If you've been listening to earlier episodes, you'll know that there had been a, a, a bubbling up of unrest across Irish history because there had been so many centuries of um, British colonization there and a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering. I talked about in episode three, or episode four, last episode, I talked about the Great Famine as being really the culmination in this kind of British entitlement to Irish lands and peoples and kind of indifference to their suffering. Um, but that was just one of many uh, injustices that had taken place there. The colonial system is a, it's a system of exploitation. At the time, it was rationalized as a way, uh, kind of benevolent, that you know, the people who are being colonized are benefiting from this. And um, I guess in some ways, colonization did bring more infrastructure and global connectiveness and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, it was a system of, of domination and exploitation. So with the Irish experience in particular, um, each colonial experience is different, but for Ireland, as I explained in the previous lecture, it really was about the expansion of animal agriculture for the production of meat and dairy and other animal products like wool, silk, and so on, really to feed the colonial system. So one of the ways that that took place is that Irish people were pushed off of their land and they were made into tenants. And so they became landless uh, and therefore vulnerable and powerless in a lot of ways. One of the ways, other ways that this was aggravated is that people from outside Ireland would be injected into Ireland, uh, like lots of Protestants were brought over uh, from the British Isles in order to destabilize, I guess, the Catholic majority and create a foothold there. And I don't want to say it's just compl a complete sectarian divide, the Protestants versus the Catholics, because there were, you know, Catholic people who benefited from, you know, wealthier Catholic people who benefited from ties to England as well. Nonetheless, it was an, an intentional strategy, and this is something that other colonial powers have done the world over. Create ethnic differences, create sectarian differences, where before people have been living together quite harmoniously. This creation of difference is extremely important for destabilizing a region and making it more vulnerable to um, colonial control, basically. So this had been happening in Ireland for some time, and ultimately, by the time we get to the 
era of independence, you know, and and you, if you want to know, like, why why is it that there's a Northern Ireland in the Republic of Ireland? It, it goes back to that. It was this intentional kind of um, stratification that was created through colonization. It's the same thing with pa uh, Pakistan and India, a region that had once been unified, and there's a lot of diversity there, and people lived side by side, fine. But British colonization came in and created so much um, distinction there between um, different religious and cultural practices that after independence, it just seemed more practical to have two different countries. So there you go. Um, with, with the independence of Ireland uh, in 1921, part of Ireland became republic, a republic, a free republic, and then part of Ireland said, you know what, we'll, we're going to stick with the, we're going to stick with the crown. So you have these two countries um, in one land space, and there are some serious, serious um, inequalities that are, are taking place. Um, in Northern Ireland, um, Catholics did not have the same rights as everyone else. And they were the majority, mind you, because, you know, this is still, this, the space is still Ireland, right? There's a lot of Catholic people living up there. Uh, they did not have housing rights. They didn't have voting rights. There's a lot of poverty in Northern Ireland as well. Um, with changes in the economy and industry, you know, the textile mills that really kept Northern Ireland going. But when those competition elsewhere in the world kind of undermined um, the, the Irish um, industries there, there's just a lot of poverty, a lot of poverty. So there was a lot of kind of nasty things that were coming to a head with, you know, poverty and want and these old tensions that have been brewing up. There had, there, there's a lot of so-called troubles that happened before the independence as well, right? It wasn't as a clean break between Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. There was a lot of debate on how this should go, go uh, take place. There's actually a civil war that happened around this independence. Uh, and so even after Ireland won its independence or was winning its independence, some Irish people turned on other Irish people because they wanted to have a completely free Ireland. And some people said, no, we want to stick with the UK. So yeah, these troubles, so-called troubles, wasn't just in the mid to late 20th century. There was a lot of this discord happening uh, around the era of independence in the late, late 1800s through the 1920s. So fast forwarding then to the 1960s, where we're dealing with extreme Catholic oppression, um, housing discrimination, uh, employment discrimination, voting discrimination, and which would be the case for so many, so many movements, the civil rights movement of the United States would come to be very influential on um, the people of Ireland, Northern Ireland. In fact, there was the troubles can really be modern, modern, quote unquote, troubles can really be credited to the work of uh, some student activists who looked at what was happening in the United States and looked at how the treatment of black folks in the South really looked similar to what the Catholics were experiencing in Northern Ireland. And so they started demonstrating. Some of these demonstrations caused some, caused or solicited rather some violent repression um, and ultimately what happened, and I'm not going to go into the whole history of like the step-by-step -step how it all, all came to be, and you can look that up yourself, but just ultimately what happened was that the British government finally had enough and started to roll in with some tanks. <laughs> it started with a peaceful student sort of movement, and then it turned into a full-on kind of nationalist um, uprising, I guess. 
So the British came in and they 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 basically shut down Northern Ireland. Had, had police and army stationed there. Uh, men were rounded up and interred. And perhaps this is where we can move into the first mention of where non-human animals come into play. Um, the, the the experience of Bobby Sands. Bobby Sands was a hunger striker, one of ten. Uh, he was originally arrested as part of these early roundups, um, suspected to have been associated with the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which was like a guerrilla nationalist resistance to British occupation. Um, whether or not he was is debated, but he was a young man and he spent much of his life in prison. Um, what ultimately happened is that originally people who were rounded up were treated as political prisoners so that they had particular rights. They could wear their own clothes. They could um, kind of walk around the premises and you know, have uh, certain civilian rights, I guess you could say. Well, then the British government uh, wanted to crack down on, on the troubles. And, there, you know, to be fair, there was a lot of bombing and, and life loss happening. And so the British government wanted to shut that down and then decided, okay, you're not political prisoners anymore. You're just going to be treated like prisoners. And they, so the, the, the hunger, who would become the hunger strikers, but there was a whole group of people who resisted this. And they said, you know what, we're not going to, this is, this is BS. We're political prisoners. We're fighting for a political cause. We wouldn't be here if we weren't fighting for a political cause. So they said, we're not going to wear these prison clothes. We're going to wear our prison blankets instead. So they went naked and wore just blankets. Uh, so they were called, originally they were the blanket protesters. Now, mind you, this is Northern Ireland. In the wintertime, it was freezing, snowy. Their, the windows on their cells did not even have glass. So the wind and snow would blow in. In the summertime, it was a whole different story. So the blanket protests weren't working. So then they thought, well, we'll refuse them the right to slop their own waste. So the waste would accumulate in these places. Rotten food would accumulate in their cells. And so in the summertime, maggots could get in. Flies could get in, lay, lay their eggs. Maggots would, would hatch. Birds sometimes would come in and, and feed off of that. In fact, Bobby Sands wrote quite a lot about um, birds, because you could see the birds, it's quite poignant, right? He was spent so many years of his life, his short life, I think he was only 26 or 27 when he died, um, watching the birds outside. And if you read his diary, he has a lot to say about the experience being like a bird trapped in a cage and just wanting to be like the birds flying free. And he would befriend some of these birds who would come in through the windows and eat the maggots that had accumulated on the rotten food. Um, but yeah, in the, in the summertime, when the heat starts to pick up and all the slop was accumulating, the prisoners said, well, here's the only thing we can do. If we can't slop our waste, they start smearing the waste on the walls because at least then it would, it would dry and wouldn't smell so bad. But then, of course, you have these images of these unbathed, unshaved men, naked, huddled in blankets, covered in filth, the walls around them covered in literal shit. And this, I think, as an animal studies scholar, is quite poignant because the, the lack of humanity and how they were treated, the animality of their experience. Of course, this says a lot about how we treat non-human animals. And it doesn't say anything about the supposed solidarity that these um, activists would have had with non-human animals who were going through similar situations. But it does really speak to the kind of politics of animality and humanity. There were, there was at the time a lot of outcry about the treatment of these prisoners. It was, it was, it was human rights violations, absolutely. And so then, as animal studies scholars, that makes us question, you know, what does it mean to have human rights in 
what does that say for non-human animals who are experienced this on a day-to-day -day basis in, in animal agriculture or in laboratories? And if you read the writings of Bobby Sands, he talks a lot about feeling animalized, that animalized experience, just living in a pigsty, basically. Ultimately, this protest really wasn't effective. Um, and so the next step is that they went on a hunger strike. And so therefore, just going even beyond. So first, they were challenging the, the, the limits of humanity. Now they're testing even the limits of their own animality and foregoing food. And so indeed, uh, Bobby Sands was the first to die, and they are now laid to rest in a uh, cemetery in Belfast, which I've, I've visited, and actually it's quite poignant. Overlooking their, their grave memorial is actually a Sainsbury supermarket, which is a British grocery store chain. It is, it just it's, it, To me, it's so symbolic of how British oppression in Ireland has always been predicated on food, food politics, and then even these nationalist um, activists and resistors, how food politics and food resistance was even central to their, um, their own protests. I want to highlight it wasn't just men who were doing this activism. There's also women who were imprisoned, and they also took on the blanket protests and the dirty protests, which is what they call the, you know, when their food, when their um, waste was not slopped and they smeared on the walls. Women, of course, female-bodied women were menstruating and not getting proper um, sanitary options for that. So they would just freely bleed. <laughs> so this is adding a whole other level of like challenging that humanity and like embracing your animal self. But on the streets as well, there was protest happening. So like I said, lots of the men were rounded up and interred, but this left women. And there was a lot of protest around, uh, there, was, there was curfew, by the way. They were expected to go in at a certain time. And there was early protest by women who were, were absolutely affronted that they were mothers and they had babies to feed and they weren't able to go out and buy milk for their babies. And they actually protested curfew to go out and get milk for their babies, um, which, you know, doesn't say much highly about non-human animals who are exploited in this situation, but again, just does raise attention to the fact that non-human animals and the food politics around that were central to the troubles in lots of different ways. Animality also surfaces in the resistance to um, the police patrol, the army patrol. Uh, women would come together and they would call themselves the hen patrol because they would basically follow around the, the army and try to um, disrupt their secrecy. So they would bang, um, rattle, um, bin lids and blow whistles and make all kinds of noise to draw attention to families that the police are here, the, the army are here, whatever you want to call them, the guards. Um, and they needed to draw attention because it was a police state. So the they would ransack different houses. They would um, come in and uh, in, at all hours of the night and just have full access to these communities. And it was really, really traumatizing, horrific time. And funnily enough, then the patrol, the guard patrols that would come around, they would be called the duck patrols because of the colors of their uniforms. So even like the animal language is being used on this kind of on the streets um, patrolling. And I think it's interesting as well because it's the, the, by calling them the duck patrol is essentially feminizing and disempowering this ultimately very patriarchal masculine <laughs> British colonial force. All right, let's let's switch it to the resist the, the resistance on the vegan side of things. So one of the most interesting and unfortunately forgotten celebrities of Irish 
um, Northern Irish veganism is a guy named Jack McClelland. Very cool dude who got his start in the boxing career, I think in the 50s. Uh, he didn't stay a boxer. He was actually a, a, an athlete of all types. He loved sports and competitions. But what made him famous is he became a long-distance swimmer. And he was also uh, president, I think, of the Belfast Vegetarian Society. He was um, a secretary or something like that. I forget now his official title with the, Veg the Vegan Society of the UK. He was also a representative of the International Ve Vegetarian Union. He was all up in the He was a vegan activist boy. And he was famous for his long-distance swims. He was famous as an athlete. And this was a time in, you know, we're talking about, by the time he became a long-distance swimmer, this was the 1960s, we're talking about a time when the science around veganism really had not been known. Of course, Irish people had always kind of known that veganism was doable because they were eating nearly vegan for many years, centuries under British colonization, toiling in the fields on mostly potatoes. Like, they knew it was doable. But by the 1960s, Irish diets had changed. It was much more meat and dairy heavy. And so to have this amazing athlete who was breaking records, swimming Irish seas, swimming channels, and doing it on a completely vegan diet, it was, he was a major celebrity of that early vegan culture. It is said that the, when he swam the Galway Bay, it brought more onlookers than even when Jack Kennedy, the famous Irish-American president, came to visit. And you can still, if you Google it, you can find video um, footage of him doing these swims. And it's like these big celebratory affairs. All the people come to watch this guy do these swims. Completely vegan. And he really firmly believed that the troubles at the time was rooted in the poor diet. He tried very unsuccessfully to raise this to the attention of the BBC and other news outlets. He thought that without a good, healthy, nutritious diet, and honestly not eating vegan, that this was creating the malaise, that was creating the tensions. He actually ran uh, a chain of health food stores in Northern Ireland, and so he was really at the forefront of the natural foods movement. And he also did a lot of experiments on his own body, eating different variations of veganism to see if it made him more or less effective as an athlete. Very cool dude. Um, we can also look to the Gun Kings, a couple who lived in Northern Ireland who actually were very um, active with the Vegan Society and the International Vegan Union. They started a kind of headquarters, if you will, in Northern Ireland where people could come to learn more about vegan food, vegan cooking. They even had a yoga studio there. And they also came, they were part of the rise of the American modern animal rights movement. They were there for the uh, vegetarian meeting in 1975 in Maine. So they were all up in it. Very cool, Northern Ireland. So yeah, uh, we'll wrap it up here and thanks for listening. Slan.